I'm going to start by reading the words of a song. I think a lot of you will know it. A winter's day in a deep and dark December, I am alone, gazing from my window to the streets below, on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. I am a rock, I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk of love. I've heard the words before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I'd never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armour, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. So sang Paul Simon in the mid-1960s. It's a powerful evocation of someone who has organised life to protect themselves from other people. Friendship, laughter, love, these things can all lead to pain. So this person has built walls to defend himself against being hurt. Now that is one way to live. But the song, I think, is so haunting because we really all sense that being a rock, being an island, is not the path to human flourishing, is it? John Donne was right. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of your friends or your own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. See what he's saying? Even if you're a clod and you get washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. But you know, the tide of our culture is sweeping us all towards greater and greater individualism. We Western people, and I'm speaking mostly about Western cultures here, we're swimming in a sea of individualism. It's in the very air that we breathe, we take it in with our mother's milk. Our entire culture is now taken up with this great project to make human beings define themselves by their own desires and feelings. We used to conceive of identity as something that was given to you. You know, you are a son or a daughter. You are a brother or a sister. You are a mother or a father. You are a leader of a, of a tribe. You are, 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 whatever it is, your job, your, your place in, in society. You're a man or a woman. But now we're taught to believe that we determine our own identity by looking into our hearts finding our deepest desires, and then shaping ourselves by them. Yesterday's Times newspaper featured an article about a surgeon who is popular with men who want to become women. He's an expert in facial reconstruction. For forty dollars to $60,000, he can reshape a man's face into the woman they always wanted to be. And the article talks about how he peels away half of someone's face to rearrange their bones underneath and put it all back again to make them look like the woman they always wanted to be. One of the people is interviewed, uh, just coming out of bandages, and she says, it feels more normal to be like this. 
It looks more like what I expect myself to look like. That's why I did it. You see that? I expect myself to look like this kind of way. And now I've managed to achieve it. What a culture we live in. But you know, the cultural moment that celebrates gender reassignment is just one part of a wider trend that's been sweeping through our culture for centuries. Individualism. Individualism. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which we just heard read, we read this strange sequence of verses. Firstly, we read about a rich man who toils all alone. Then we get a series of proverbs on the theme, two are better than one, and then a story of two kings. What's this all about? It is a critique of individualism. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the one who writes it, is showing us two ways to live. One way is very attractive and popular in our culture. It says you are the captain of your own ship, you are the manager of your own destiny, and you can do that by self-determination. But he's going to show us that that way is futile. The path of self-centred individualism will lead us to be isolated and empty. The other way, the other way of life is summed up in a phrase, two are better than one. It's the way of partnership. It's the way of collaboration. It's the way of community. And yes, on the surface, it does look like those who are deeply committed to community are not as free. They've given up the the solitary quest for money and power. They've given up the right to captain their ship alone. They've made themselves accountable to others. They've allowed their life to be deeply intertwined with others like a strand in a cord. Because they have learned that to be deeply intertwined like that is to be stronger. And what this text is all about, what it's trying to do is to persuade you and me to give up our rugged individualism and to pursue community. It's trying to persuade us that two are better than one. And to to make life choices based on that. So that's my goal today too, to persuade you that two are better than one. Now, the text that we have here has got three movements, and you can think of it a bit like a sandwich. So you've got your two bits of bread on the outside, and in the middle you've got the filling. And the two bits of bread are two stories of individuals who try to go it alone, uh, and it tells us what the outcome is. And the middle of the sandwich, the meat or the filling, is the better way that shows us that two are better than one. So I want to take those two stories, the two bits of bread first, and then come back to the filling in the middle. Three points. Lonely money, isolated power, and two are better than one. You get that? Lonely money, isolated power, and two are better than one. So firstly, lonely money. Look with me at verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Now this is a picture of the hard-working, driven company chief executive, isn't it? He has worked his way up to the top of the tree, but he lives alone up there. It's a picture of someone who never stops. The person who's sending you an email at 4am and asking why you haven't replied to it. The person who is constantly on the phone, texting 
moving from one place to another rapidly, travelling for business, on the phone, talking, getting the laptop out, never stopping, organising meetings, pulling together the strategy, holding us all accountable to the targets and the goals, the plans, making more and more money than you can possibly spend, but we find he hasn't actually even got time to spend it. But he's still not contented with all his wealth, it says in verse 8. Because money has a way of doing this to us, doesn't it? Being wealthy but not contented? I've never met a person who said they had too much money. Because money has this, this habit of opening doors. And when you go through that door, you find it's a place that you couldn't get to before you had that money. And when you get into that new place, you find there are people in there already who are richer than you. So the quest for more continues. This man is all alone. It says he doesn't have a son or a brother. For a man in the ancient world, these are the two closest allies, the son and the brother. It's a picture of loneliness. And is he all alone because he's a workaholic? Perhaps the loneliness and the success are connected. They often are. Samuel Johnson said, to be unhappy at home is the ultimate result of all ambition. To be unhappy at home is the ultimate result of all ambition. Now the Bible is not against wealth. The Bible is not against riches. Far from it. Some of the greatest heroes of faith in the Bible are actually very wealthy. Money is not the root of all evil. Sometimes that is uh, misquoted. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See the difference? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Loving money, really loving it, leads you to toil for wealth. And that is a heart problem that destroys you from the inside out. Just like the hardening of the arteries in the physical heart, the love of money will harden your heart until in the end you can't, it can't beat anymore. Matt Chandler is a pastor in a very affluent part of the United States and president of the Acts 29 network that we're part of. Uh, Matt says that he has never had a woman come into his office in tears and tell him that she hates her dad because he used to drop her off at school in a beaten up old car. He says he's never had a woman come and tell him that she hates her dad because he didn't buy her a pony or because he didn't pay for her to go on a school skiing trip. But he says he has met plenty of young women in his part of the world whose dad had a $60,000 car and could have paid for the whole school to go on a skiing trip. But these women have not known the love of a father. And so they have a totally warped sense of their own value. You know, you can, you can know the price of everything and the value of nothing. All of this leads to a question at the end of verse 8. The man asks the question, For whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? What is the point of it? It really, at the end of the day, is only for yourself... But it's drained all the joy out of your life. So it really is futile. The word under there, we've thought about this in the last few weeks, is hevel. It means a breath. Just something fleeting, empty. It's here and gone, you can't control it. it that kind of work, living for getting to the top of the tree, but sacrificing community on the way, is meaningless. An empty business. The second picture is one of isolated power. Look with me at verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old 
but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Now, this is quite shocking in the ancient world. This is quite radical, because in the ancient world, age and kingship are usually thought of as wise. If you're an older person, usually in the ancient world, you're thought of as a wise person. And if you're the king, then you're the top of the tree. So here we have this old king, but it says he's foolish, and a poor youth who's born with nothing is actually more wise than he. Why is it? Because the king no longer knows how to heed a warning. He can't take advice. He's cut himself off from accountability and others speaking words into his life that can change him. And so it says that the youth effectively takes the king's position and the king loses out. It's folly, even there at the top of the tree, to be in such a position that you're isolated. And even, it says, the best, the very best people will be forgotten. Those who came later were not pleased with the successor. Isolated power. See those two pictures? Lonely money, isolated power. Two things we think would make life work, wouldn't they? We would think that money and power might, might make our lives work. And he's just exposed them. They've been critiqued. That won't get you there. So thirdly, let's get to the, the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Two are better than one. Verse 9 says, two are better than one. And he gives a number of reasons for it. Here they are. Because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now these are all uh, little pictures, almost like pen pictures, to show us, to illustrate the point that two are better than one, that it's better to live in community. There's a better return for labour, he says. If you're doing a job on your own, it can be lonely, inefficient and difficult. But working as part of a team, even a team of two, is much more rewarding. It's usually more productive. There's someone to share your day with. There's someone to share the, the burden of the work. Often you can get more done as, as two. One can hold the ladder while the other one goes up to paint the windows or whatever. There's a better return if two are on the job. Secondly, he says, if two fall down, one of them can help the other up. Now, in the ancient world, people travelling often risk falling into holes or pits and unmade roads. If you fell in such a place on your own, you were really stuck. But he says... If one falls down and the other one can help them up. But pity the person who falls alone. Pity the person who falls alone. Then he uses this image of lying down with someone. He says, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Now, this isn't particularly an image of sexual lying down. It's, it's an image of keeping warm, again, on a journey. In the ancient world, people would travel in the night. Temperatures could be freezing. And they would lie down and literally have to huddle together to keep warm. When uh, we first got married, one of the things I most looked forward to in married life was going to sleep in each other's arms. I had this wonderful image that we would just sort of <laughs> hold one another and drift into a, a, a lovely, warm, slum, yeah, dream, dreamless sleep. And I, th I think maybe I'd seen it in films. I just imagine that's what married life would be like. And then the first night of our married life, my wife said to me, will you get off me? You're too hot. <laughs> Later years, that was 
shortened to get off. Because I'm quite hot, I like to think. My email address is hotmail.com. Lying down together, you keep warm. Now, this isn't just an image of physical warmth, is it? It's about emotional warmth. The comfort and the warmth of having someone close who understands me. Someone who's there with me. Particularly in those times when it's fraught and cold and you feel alone. And then it's the, the, the next image is one of protection. Again, in the ancient world, people travelling in the, the days before police forces and uh, organised <coughs> systems of justice, people could be very vulnerable. Jesus told a story uh, of a traveller on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho who gets attacked by bandits, beaten up, left bleeding in a ditch, all his stuff taken, his clothes taken away from him, and you know the story of the Good Samaritan. That was a reality in the world that they lived in. So he says here in Ecclesiastes, one may be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. You've got a better chance of survival in this world if you're in a group. We even say it to people walking home late at night in Manchester, don't we? Go together. And then, he's, he, he, interestingly, having said two, two are better than one, two can do this, two can do that, he then says, it sort of increases the number at the end of verse 12. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What's going on there? Some of the ancient commentators seized upon this as evidence that he's talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't seem to be what's in view here, but a way of saying two isn't an exhaustive number, more is better. Three can be even stronger than two. Think of a rope. There's a strand, but then you get a second and third and twist them together, and the rope itself can be so strong because it's bound together with those three cords. See the contrast now we've seen of the two different ways of life? One is lonely striving for success and money that leads to meaninglessness. The other is someone who's got great power and influence but is foolish because they can't listen to advice. They're disconnected from community. And then all these images to show us that if, if we will be in deep community with others, we'll find a better return from our labour. We'll find someone to help us when we fall down. We'll find the warmth and the emotional connection that we need in this world. We'll be protected by somebody else, not just having to fight our own corner all the time. Don't you want to live like that? Two are better than one, aren't they? You know, if, we, if you've been following along in this series of Ecclesiastes, we've discovered that a lot of things are meaningless. In fact, nearly everything so far. The book starts, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. We've thought about what that word means. We've thought about devoting your life to pleasure, projects, education, how all of it ultimately is like chasing the wind. We've gone through all these different things, and finally, here we are, the first thing that isn't meaningless. The ray of light is breaking in, and here it is, it's community. Two are better than one. Are you persuaded of that? Or do you think being a rock and being an island is a better way to live? Cutting yourself off from pain. Two are better than one. And I want to ask if you are persuaded of that because it will cost you to live in community. It will cost you your independence because no longer will you be able to do just exactly what you want to do all the time. You'll have to be 
responsible and relating to other people. It will cost you in terms of commitment to do things that you might not necessarily have wanted to do. It will also cost you in terms of being open to other people's pain and open to other people letting you down. But still, two are better than one. Now I've covered that whole unpacking of this text in 20 minutes because I want to really nail the application, okay? This is more like a Puritan sermon where the application is almost longer than the first bit. So I want to think through what two are better than one means for us in three areas of life, work, home, and church. Work, home, and church. Work, two are better than one. How does this principle operate in your place of work? Let me tell you about a member of this church, I won't name him, he's been working in the same organisation for a number of years. Normally people in in his organisation work for a fixed term and then they finish and they have to move on, do something else, but his contract keeps getting extended. I meet with him regularly, I used to meet him at his workplace and I've observed how he not only does his own projects but he seeks to help his colleagues. I've observed it, not because he's boasted, but because I've observed it. If he has expertise in something, or experience in something, he will gladly go out of his way to share with others who need help. And that takes time, patience, and thoughtfulness for other people. He could have pursued his own projects more ruthlessly, but he has lived as if two are better than one. At his last annual review, his boss said, in my entire career, I've never known someone who was such a team player. He was honoured because it was plain to everyone, especially those higher up in the organisation, that having him in the team means the whole team plays better. Everyone benefits from having him there. Now that's two are better than one. You know, our work culture is becoming more and more individualistic. Uh, everyone is on short-term contracts these days. Um, everyone, even jobs that used to be cushy numbers, are now given demanding individual performance targets. And in some organisations, they encourage internal competition. I used to work for a company like this. There's constant pressure to look out for yourself, to seek your own advancement, and to let others just look out for themselves. But the Bible says two are better than one. So what does that mean for your workplace? What does it mean for your role? At work, are you primarily serving your own career, your own business, or are you seeking the good of others and the whole organisation? Now, you know this works in countless ways, from taking the time to coach someone junior and answer their questions, even when you're busy, Sharing your contacts, sharing your expertise with people who don't know as much. Doing that job that no one else wants to do in the team. Making the coffee. In other words, doing the things that no one does if they're only interested in personal advancement. What does it mean for you to live as if two are better than one in your workplace? Is the Holy Spirit putting something on your heart right now? And will you pray that he'll give you the courage to do it tomorrow morning? That's work. Secondly, home. Is it, is it sort of 
silly and counterintuitive to, to, to talk about home. Surely home is the one place where we live in community by its very nature. Well, actually, our homes are a battleground for individualism as well. Because you can view your private life as just that, private. An autonomous zone where other people have no access unless you give them a permit. They say an Englishman's home is his castle, but I'm pretty sure that mentality is not limited to English men. Let me just speak to single people for a moment. What about your home, the place where you live, and the sphere of your relationships? Is your life an open one, an inclusive one, a welcoming one that brings people into community, or are you essentially engaged in a clique? Many years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a paper. He was talking, I think, to a group of young, maybe graduates or, or people about to embark in the workplace, and he talked about what he calls the inner ring. He says, we all know there's an inner ring. There's that the inner circle of people. We kind of can sense it, and it's there in every organisation. And they're the ones you really want to be on the inside of that set of relationships. They look at each other with a certain look. They have their own kind of shared language. Being on the inner ring means you're kind of accepted and approved of by the people who matter. And Lewis is essentially counselling people to beware of it and not to do that. Not to crave to be in the inner ring and not to create them. But, you know, churches have inner rings too. Just imagine what it's like for a new person to come to Grace Church and come and sit in this room with all these people and they don't know anyone. And you're here and you know you've been here a while, you've got your own circle. How can you make your home, the sphere of your relationships, an open and welcoming place? What about the family? Some people turn to the nuclear family as a refuge. And when I say nuclear family, I mean the basic social unit of parent and dependent children, not the family that explodes with a large mushroom cloud. Although that can be the case too. Does your family function like a castle or a community builder? Is your home a warm, open and welcoming place or is it closed to outsiders? Is there no time for community because you're just too busy taking children to after-school clubs, sports and a tutor to get them into that elusive grammar school? None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But is life being developed in such a way that there's no room for anyone else? Psalm 68 says that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows who sets the lonely in families. If that is the character of our God, how should it shape our character? God created us to live well, only in deep, loving relationships. Two are better than one. Can we set the lonely in our family? How could your home be used for that? Work, home, and finally church. Two are better than one. Call of three strands is not quickly broken. The burden of Ecclesiastes is to make us, call us to live as a true community. And that's certainly something we've talked a lot about at Grace Church the last few years. We've worked and, 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 and taught and, and tried to be a true community, not just an event. You see, when church is an event, it's basically about Sunday. You turn up on Sunday, you experience the event. You might get to know a few people, but the relationships don't go very deep because they're limited to two hours on a Sunday morning. You might go regularly to church, be a churchgoer, 
But your life isn't deeply intertwined with the lives of others like the strands in a cord. You may even get to serve on a team. You might serve really well. But your engagement with people doesn't go much beyond the task. But when church is a community, it goes to an entirely different level. You allow people into your life. You allow people into your diary. You allow them into your home and your heart. And this way is much more costly to you and infinitely richer. Because in community, we learn and grow in ways that we never would have grown if we'd stayed at arm's length. Two examples. Firstly, is a church that was replanted in Liverpool. The church had originally started in the 1930s. It had grown for many decades. It had, it had, had a great impact, but, but in later years, it had started to decline in the 1980s and 90s. And by the early years of, of uh, this century, uh, the church was small and struggling and dying. It was down to about 15 people, I think all over the age of 70, and praying and asking God that he might yet renew the work. And they took the bold move of reaching out to a young pastor, church planter in his 30s, and asking him to come with his family. And he came and brought 15 younger people to join the 15 older people. And so together they committed to relationship. And they really went for it. Spent a lot of time eating together in homes, building a community. And after two months, one of the old saints, one of the elders, said, you know, I've spent more time in Roy's house in the last two months than I have in the previous 30 years. It started to be a community. They learned that two are better than one. And God poured out his blessing on that work. And less than 10 years later, they've grown to more than 250 people, seen many people brought to faith and planted two other churches by investing in community. Another church planted in Newcastle started with seven people in a living room. They decided they were going to commit to community. The pastor said to me this week, we have taught community, fought for community, and been exhausted by community. We've taught it, fought for it, and been exhausted by it. And it, is, it can be exhausting to be involved in community. You know, it's much more tiring to be in community with people than to live a tidy life without other people cluttering it up. But think of the gains. Two, so much better than one. Cord of three strands, not quickly broken. So let me ask, do you view church as an event Sunday? Or do you see it as your community? Are you seeking, therefore, to engage with other people at the church in a sustained, meaningful way where your life will be bound up with theirs? And if so, your diary would reflect that, wouldn't it? Does your diary show a commitment to community? Or can community easily be dropped if other interests collide? We have these things at the moment, we call, they're called life groups, Grace Church. They're not just another event. They're an attempt to build community in small groups. They're designed for this purpose. A group of people who will commit to growing as followers of Jesus by meeting regularly, sharing food, spending time in each other's homes, spending time in God's word and prayer, and helping one another to be a witness. Have you made the step of binding your life into the lives of others through such a group, or is it still at arm's length? Final question. 
How do you approach major life decisions? I'm thinking of things like dating and marriage, taking a new job, moving house, moving church. Do you work those big life decisions out in community or on your own? In nine years at this church, I have to say it amazes me the number of times someone will come up with a major decision out of the blue and they haven't talked to anyone about it. It's like we believe in community up to a certain point and then I'm on my own. I've lost count of the number of times someone's told me next Sunday will be the last one because I'm getting married and moving to Mongolia to be a yak farmer. I've just lost count of the number of times that's happened. So the challenge to us here is to live, really live as if two are better than one. We're not on our own pursuing our own ambitions and identity. We're bound together like a cord of three strands. And we do that in the knowledge that our God is a trinity. He is a communion of loving persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. Extraordinary mystery, but it shows us that community and love and interdependence are at the heart of reality. And we we know also from the New Testament that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, his work was to sacrifice himself for the sake of others in order to bring more into the family. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the letter to the Hebrews says. What was that joy? It was his people. It was his church, his, his community. He did it to share his home with us and his life by grace and grace alone. So let's resolve, shall we, to live as if two really are better than one and ask that God will show us how to do that today.